Amos chapter 5. <coughs> False security in religion is the theme of uh, the chapter. The chapter is midway through the prophecy of Amos, and very often in the Psalms or in the prophetic books, if you look at where the center is, you uh, find the core message of the, uh, the book itself. And that's the case with Amos. Uh, Amos is talking here about the, the danger of relying upon worship which is formal, uh, worship which is not evidenced by a practical outworking of care for the poor and the oppressed. There are two oracles in the chapter. Uh, one is an oracle of lament, uh, verses 1 to 17, and then in verses 18 to 27, uh, an oracle of woe. Uh, in the first oracle, there's a judgment of God on fake religion. And then in the second oracle, the oracle of woe, uh, God is warning the people against the, the, the dreadful mistake of looking towards the day of the Lord as a day of, of triumph and acceptance, when in fact it will be a day of condemnation. Uh, let's look first of all at the oracle of lament in the first 17 verses. Uh, you may or may not have heard of the guy David Swarbrick. Uh, he was actually quite a prominent uh, musician in the, the, uh, the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. He was a violist and singer uh, in the, the group Fairport Convention. And he died uh, last year, age 75, and he joined a list of people uh, back in 1999, at least not last year, 1999, he joined a list of, of people including uh, Mark Twain, Bob Hope, and Alfred Nobel, who had their obituary written prematurely for them. Uh, Dave Swarbrick of Fairport Convention was lying very ill in a hospital bed in Coventry, very ill but not dead, and the Daily Telegraph were misinformed and they wrote up an obituary uh, to him in their newspaper. And of course, when he discovered it, he was still very much alive, they were profusely apologetic, and although it must have been quite a shock, he saw the funny side of it and he said it wasn't the first time he had died in Coventry. Uh, but it must have been, nevertheless, a dreadful shock. It must have been a wake-up call to read the notice of your own death. To wonder what people have made of your short life on this earth. To see in print a notice of your decease. And that's what Israel was exposed to hear. Israel is very much alive at the point that there is a lament, a funeral lament being read to them. They're very much alive. They had uh, Jeroboam II was a vigorous king. They had uh, expanding trade routes and all the rest of it. And even, as we see, their, their religious life was uh, very, very active. Even in the description of the deceased, uh, there is a reminder of uh, what Israel is like. She's described as virgin Israel. And the picture here is of a young woman uh, about to embark on the, the most uh, exciting and, and uh, 
fruitful stage of life. She's going to be married, perhaps. She's going to become a mother. Uh, all of this is lying ahead of her, and yet she's fallen, never to rise again. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. And the cause of death, cause of death is enemy invasion. Amos is prophesying about what would take place 20 years later, uh, when, uh, 40 years later, when the, the Assyrians would come in, in, uh, in 722 and they would uh, sweep through uh, northern Israel, destroy their citadels. And he describes it as a 90% uh, wipeout. Only 10% of the population will be left. Now, that doesn't seem to be much consolation, but in the context of, of Bible figures, there is always hope where there is a remnant. There is a remnant in Israel. And of course, the appeal to turning back is given to the remnant that will survive the invasion of the Assyrians. Now, you, I think you've got to really imagine Amos giving this his all. Amos is a dramatic prophet. And as he delivers this funeral lament, it's very possible he's weeping. He's crying. There are tears. There's anguish. This is something that's breaking his heart to say. And the lament style has got a lot to tell us about how God views judgment. When we come across uh, words of judgment in the Old Testament, very often it's couched in sorrowful language. Listen to the anguish in the words of God when he speaks about the fate that comes upon Israel through Ezekiel. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and they turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And of course, there's Jesus, uh, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You are not willing. So poignant, isn't it? As Christians, we, we have to have that, that, that note of sorrow when we speak about judgment, you know, there are two false options. Either you don't speak about hell and judgment, or you speak about it harshly. There's a well-known story about uh, Robert Murray McChain, the famous preacher in St. Peter's Dundee, uh, conversing with his friend and colleague in the ministry, Andrew Boner. And as ministers do, he's asking him, what did you preach on last Sunday? And Boner says, I preached on hell. And McChain replies, I hope you preached it with tears. And in actual fact, that was McChain's own practice. His biographer uh, speaks of him leaning over the edge of the pulpit uh, and with tears in his face, pleading with the people in front of him as though they were hanging over the abyss of hell itself to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reminder of how important it is to, to have compassion as the note when we speak about judgment. You know, lots of, lots of well-intentioned people say, if only the church would preach more about hell. Well, if we preach more of hell, we need to have more tears in the pulpit also. 
The lament continues from verse 4 onwards uh, with a warning not to buy into false religion, urging a turning to the Lord. And notice uh, the, the interesting contrast that's, that's made uh, in these verses. Uh, this is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. You see, there's a, a choice. They, they're seeking Bethel. Uh, but in seeking Bethel, they're, they're evading the Lord. And God is saying to them, don't seek what you find in Bethel, but seek the living God instead. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Three sanctuaries. Bethel, uh, we know associated with Jacob. Uh, Jacob's ladder to heaven, the vision that he has at Bethel, a place of covenant and promise. Uh, a place so important in Israel's history that uh, at the division of the kingdom, Jeroboam the first made Bethel as the, the preeminent alternative shrine to Jerusalem and established a golden calf at Bethel. Beersheba, uh, uh, Gilgal, sorry, Gilgal was the place where uh, when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan, uh, coming into the Exodus, they camped there and Joshua had all of the, the males that had been in the, the wilderness wandering who weren't circumcised, had them circumcised. Again, an important sanctuary. Beersheba was actually outside of Israel. It was in Judah. But it's important because it's associated with the three patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are all connected in different ways with Beersheba. And it had become a... a a popular place of pilgrimage from the north. Now the point is, isn't, uh, and we could lose the point if we thought it was simply that they weren't authorized by God. Now that's true, it was Jerusalem was where they were to worship. The point that Amos is making is that when they went there, it was the outward shell of religion. It was a place that they were going to connect with. They weren't connecting with God. They were going because it was a place of association with their past. But their hearts were not set on the one living and true God. Now, people in all generations do this, don't they? They can get diverted from God himself and focus instead on the trappings of religion. And people can become so committed to uh, an institution Church as an institution, even when it becomes totally apostate, that uh, they cling to it in loyalty. Or people, when they're looking for a church, uh, they can be looking for all of the, the kind of side things, the, the, the trappings, the, the, the flummery that sometimes goes with church. And it's, it's so sad to see uh, how important things like, you know, good coffee, free Wi-Fi, Short sermons, good music, uh, varied youth ministry. These things are what attract many people uh, to uh, a church. And they are in the process failing to connect with the living God. And Amos is pleading with the people, don't seek the shell, seek the reality. Because if you don't connect with the reality, if you don't seek the Lord, then you won't even be left with the shell because they're all going to be destroyed. Gilgal will be sent into exile. Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek me. 
And then in contrast to the shell, Amos points us to the reality. Don't seek Bethel. Seek the Lord in all his awesome glory. We have another, uh, the commentators describe them as, as, uh, as hymns to, to, to God. Little uh, sections. There's three of them in Amos. Well, this is the second one that we've come across, uh, where in the midst of one of the oracles, God is portrayed for us in, in majestic uh, language. God is the God who made the Pleiades and Orion. He made the constellations. Uh, he is the creator and he's the transformer. He turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night. Uh, he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. He transforms dry land. Uh, into ocean. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. God, the great transformer. Uh, the point is that the people themselves are to be transformed through encountering God. But they were going to these shrines and they were leaving unchanged. Uh, the only thing that was transformed was done in a negative way. They, they transformed justice into injustice. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. So there's a really important point that's being made here in this warning, in the lament. That worship is not worship when it's focusing on the trappings of religion on buildings and institutions and ways of doing things, they can all miss God. Worship, and this is the, the, the second uh, strain to, to Amos's preaching, worship is not worship when the lifestyle of compassion doesn't go along. If we're not caring for people uh, who are needy, uh, who are the victims of injustice, then uh, we're not worshipping. That ought to be part of our worship. And Amos declares that Israel had failed the test. Verse 11, you trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. So the picture here is of uh, middle class Israelites extorting uh, those who are near destitute and forcing them to supply them with the grain uh, for their barn or for their larders. Now, so easy uh, to say, well, at least we're not guilty of that. <laughs> but when you think of uh, this very thing, just keeping close to home in terms of exploiting people uh, who provide us with food and clothing, uh, we can be just as guilty of doing that. Uh, Many of, the, many of the bargains that we have in our shops are only bargains because people have been exploited along the way. Uh, people have been forced uh, into producing food uh, at rock-bottom price. Uh, they, or perhaps the, the clothes that we've bought have been produced by child labor and so on. And it's easy on our conscience because the supply chain is so long. We don't see the people who are actually suffering. But as Christians, we are always to, to try to think intelligently about how we shop and to be concerned that, that what we are buying 
uh, isn't a bargain because somebody else has suffered in the process. It may be that uh, our gain, uh, if we could only see it, uh, is because uh, there is somebody in the, in the third world stacking our shells for nothing. And this is what Amos is thundering against. This careless, unconcerned oppression of people who are weak and vulnerable to provide us with what we want. And very often as Christians we think these things aren't really our responsibility. You know, if we're evangelicals, well, we preach the gospel. And we have pure worship. And Amos is saying, no, you've got it wrong. We're called to have a concern for these kind of issues. Food justice, or the provision of clean water, or being concerned about the educational needs of disabled people. And Israel made the mistake of dividing up life and thinking that these things weren't part of religious concern. The kingdom of God is fulfilling always the promise that God gave to Abram that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And where do we see that happening first? In Abraham's line. We see it happening in the life of Joseph, don't we? The nations are blessed through Joseph, the man of faith. And how are they blessed? They're blessed materially. They're provided with grain in a time of famine. Social action is far too important to leave it to liberals who have no gospel. Amos thunders again against the embarrassment with which Israelites turned away for people who were standing up for justice. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. Familiar? And then there's a cost to all of this, this despising uh, justice, this embarrassment at people who, who stand up and, and who speak out for the vulnerable. We can think about uh, people who speak up for the unborn or the handicapped. And in the covenant, there were blessings for obeying the covenant and there were curses when covenant was disobeyed. Deuteronomy 28, you have covenant blessing you have covenant curse. One of the, the really significant curses in the covenant for people who did not obey God, didn't love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and their neighbor as themselves, was the curse of futility. So you put a lot of effort into something and you know it was supposed to, to reap a reward for you. And classically, you planted a vineyard and you look forward to reaping the grapes. And the curse of futility meant that you could put as much effort and energy in as you want. You wouldn't have a harvest. What you've done will fall into somebody else's hands or it will be wiped out with blight and disease. And that's what will happen here. Uh, the vineyards, that though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink the wine. No satisfaction. It's a testament to what happens right down through the generations. Uh, people who have invested, uh, who turned away from God and invested their lives in things that they thought would give them delight and pleasure. And like Marie Antoinette, 
uh, their testimony is nothing tastes. Nothing tastes. Futility. So we're called like Israel to, to hate injustice with a passion and to love uh, what is good. Hate evil, love good. Uh, in verse 14, uh, there's a kind of parallel with what Amos has said earlier. You know, earlier he said, don't seek Bethel, seek the Lord and live. But now he's saying, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Uh, to seek the Lord is all to, to seek the good of the Lord, to seek the things that God loves, to seek his holiness, uh, and to hate the things that God hates, to hate evil. You know, we're, we're not passionate enough. Uh, holiness is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And one of the things that God hates, of course, is lukewarmness. He hated the lukewarmness of the Laodicean. We are to have the passion of God in seeking justice with all of our hearts. And if we don't, then the warning to Israel is spiritual and physical death. Uh, there's a picture of wailing in the street. So many are falling, so many have died, that the, the dead are feet high. And in Israel, you had professional mourners. If you were going to have a funeral, you wanted a good funeral, so you got professional mourners, you bought them in. But there weren't enough to go around, so they've gone into the fields and they're taking farm hands in to do the wailing because there are just so many dead. Oracle of Lament. And then from verse 18 to the end, it's a different format. It's an oracle of woe. And in this oracle, Amos is warning against relying upon the day of the Lord as a day of triumph a day of vindication. And Israel always thought that the day of the Lord would be a good day for Israel. The day of the Lord is when God will return. The, the warrior king will come on behalf of his people. Uh, as in the day of Midian, to use Isaiah's term. Uh, it will be a, a day reminiscent of God's victory at the Exodus, when uh, the chariots of Pharaoh were overturned in the sea, in the Red Sea. Well, Amos is warning, if you're counting on the day of days, that will bring in the final reckoning to come in on your side, and yet uh, you are far from God, you're not truly worshipping, you're making gods of your shrines and your holy places, you're disregarding his passion for justice, and you're oppressing the people that he cares for, then uh, Emma says, you are in for a dreadful surprise. Terror will take you, not consolation, on that day. And we have that wonderful picture that we're looking at of the man who is fleeing from the lion. And uh, he's fleeing from all the, the terrors of death and the, all of the, the upheavals of the last day. And he thinks, well, now that I stand before the judgment throne, all is well, only to find a bear meeting him. What's up? masterful way of, of portraying the, the, the awfulness of being self-confident on the last day, of thinking all is well, when actually all is not well at all, all is dreadfully wrong. Safe at last, you've thrown yourself out of harm's way, only to realize you've walked into your worst nightmare. It'll be a day of darkness. 
Many of the images, again, are drawn from the Exodus. And in the Exodus, of course, God is against his enemies and his bringing out his people, he's liberating his people. But in the pictures that we have in Amos, the enemies become Israel. Uh, so that when God says that he will walk through their midst, uh, in verse 17, I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Uh, it's the language of the, the angel, the destroying angel, passing through the midst of uh, the Egyptians and slaying the firstborn. But now God is coming to bring judgment on his own people. And the picture of the day of the Lord being darkness rather than light reminds us of the, one of the plagues, the darkness that came upon the Egyptians in uh, the, the plagues of Egypt. Very often in the church, uh, a note of triumphalism creeps in, doesn't it? And, and people speak of, uh, you know, we're, we're ready to meet with God uh, in days of prosperity. And you have, you know, some pretty vacuous songs like, these are the days of Elijah. You know, we think that we're, we're living in, in days when God is, is really obliged to bless us. And we really are far away from him. False security. Israel's security based on false worship. Uh, it has been a sham. And Amos, in the closing verses, uh, is underlining the fact that uh, true worship isn't a case of simply having the right words or going through the right formula, wearing the right clothes, going to the right places. Uh, it's about the heart. Uh, it's about the, the acid test as to whether our relationship with the living God results in the, the love of compassion and justice that God wants from his people. So these northern tribes had been heaping up sacrifices. They had really been going at it. They had been uh, offering to God relentlessly all the varied types of sacrifices, burnt offerings, Grain offerings, fellowship offerings. They were by and large offerings that Moses prescribed. So in themselves, nothing wrong with that. But in the Old Testament, sacrifice is always meant to point away from itself. Uh, the sacrifice uh, didn't in itself have saving value. Uh, only so far as it created faith in the, the sacrifice that was the fulfillment of the shadow. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So on, uh, represented and foreshadowed in all of the different sacrifices. And to underline that, uh, God through it says, uh, did you offer sacrifices in the wilderness? The, the sacrificial system was given uh, for a time when the people were in a settled land, when, when they had animal husbandry to provide the, the, the numerous sacrifices that were required. But in the wilderness period, although there was great times of relational breakdown, that's still it's seen as a, as a special time of intimacy between God and his people. And at that time there was no sacrifice given. So the sacrifice is only pointing towards something else, something real. And when that relationship isn't there, it's a sham, it's merely outward, formal religion. Again, just updated, coming to the 21st century, coming to different branches of the church. You know, some 
uh, more sacramental branches of the church uh, are hung up on uh, you know, the, the, the minister or the priest having the right clerical clothes or the correct stance at communion on one side, and then you have uh, the, the other end of the spectrum where all that's important is whether people raise their hands when, when they're singing or whether there's contemporary Christian music. These are the things that become absolutely important. And in both cases, the heart of worship is overlooked and God is not impressed. Away with the noise of your songs, God says in verse 23. And calls for the proper outward evidence of a changed heart. What is the proper outward evidence of a changed heart? That glorious verse in verse 24. Let justice Roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Isn't that powerful? Justice is to roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. In other words, our justice is not to be intermittent. Uh, in the Middle East, you, you had these, what they call wadis. And the wadi was a, a, a temporary river a dry riverbed for a large part of the year and then when the, the winter rains came the wadi would fill up with water and Amos is saying your righteousness is not to be like that your justice is not to be intermittent it is to be a, a lifestyle it's to go on and it's to display the love of God oh that the Lord would inflame us uh, for the kind of passion that Amos has for this fully rounded, fully ordered Christianity. That we'd see that the, it's a false divide that divides uh, what we do on Sunday, our public worship, with care for the disadvantaged or the oppressed or those who are victims of injustice. It's a false barrier between caring for the soul and the body. Think of the, the attitude of Charles Spurgeon. We think of him as the, the great, the, the uh, prince of preachers, which he was. Uh, his magazine was the, the Sword and Trowel. Uh, and he emphasized this, this unity. And uh, he, he proclaimed the kingdom through anointed preaching and the multiplication of orphanages. We need to do that as well. We need to hold two things in balance. I think actually that uh, the, the generation coming up are better at doing this than uh, my generation at least were. I think when you look at some of the, uh, the Christian unions and the students that are involved in, in evangelistic work, uh, continually uh, working to bring the gospel to others, and at the same time you see evidences also of a concern for uh, those who are poor. Just to give you an example, I saw uh, on, on Facebook a, a crowdfunding scheme from, uh, organized by some students from Glasgow and Strathclyde CU. Provide for Roma children uh, the basics that they need to go to school and not to stand out from the rest of the children. School uniforms, uh, school materials. That's part of their worship also. And that is what the, the, the prophecy of Amos is urging on us. 
uh, it's not saying that uh, sacrifice is unimportant. What it's saying to us is it's what uh, sacrifice is done is all important. It's urging us cling to the cross. Cling to the cross. Cling to the true and the ultimate sacrifice and love the poor. Return to God with heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And only when you are doing these things, only then are you showing true religion that God accepts. And only then, says Amos, are you ready to meet with your God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the, the passionate challenge of Amos that rings down through the years. Oh Lord, we pray that it would find us out as well. And where our Christianity is lopsided, we ask, Lord, that you might come and help us to see it redressed and balanced. Help us, Lord, to, to hate the, the things that you hate, the things which are offensive to you, the oppression and the injustice that your prophets cried out against, and to love what you love. Help us to visit the orphan and the widow in their distress, to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.